Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Murray Pittock about his book titled Scotland, A Global History, just out in 2022 from Yale University Press. This book is a really fascinating, detail-driven, engaging, um, and really quite authoritative history of Scotland's influence in the world and the world's influence on Scotland, um, all the way from the Thirty Years' War, really, to the present. This is an absolutely fascinating book on a number of levels, and so I'm really excited to be speaking about it and to have you, Murray, with us to tell us all about the book. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure, Miranda. A pleasure, Miranda. Very good, very good to be here and have the chance to uh, to talk about Scotland, the global history. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? So, um, I'm Murray Pittock. I am a historian and uh, uh, literary historian and cultural historian, as well as as well as historian of the long 18th century. Uh, I've written quite a large number of books, one way or the other, focusing on. Uh, Scotland, the United Kingdom, and the archipelago of what used to be called the British Isles. And uh, this this book arose because uh, uh, Yale contacted me and asked if I would do a history of Scotland for them. And I said, you really don't want another of those. What you want is something which has not been done, because in the last 20 years, there have been quite a number of studies, for example, of Scotland's diaspora, and of Scotland's relation to the British Empire, but there hasn't been an overall book about Scotland in its global context. Uh, so the European side of Scotland's experience has been uh, left out. In many ways, the non-imperial side of Scotland's experience has been left out. And also, there hasn't been a, what um, James Clark Maxwell would have called uh, look at the go of it, uh, the way in which uh, Scottish networks what were the, actually functioned and what were the key institutions driving the success of those networks. Though so there have been some tremendous uh, close uh, close work on associations and Scottish culture abroad, we needed something which brought the whole picture together, especially in a, a context where uh, Scotland's relationship with the international international dimension of experience has been uh, uh, more clearly brought to the fore in recent years than ever before. Mm. I'm glad you um, explained not just kind of how you came to this book, but the the specific kind of global dimensions of it and the connections and the networks, because that does really come out so strongly um, throughout the book, which I think is a really interesting sort of lens to look at Scottish history, um, to look at Scotland's influence, but also as a lens within sort of the scholarship of global history generally to think of that as a way um, to tell history. So I'm very excited that you've mentioned that and I'm sure we'll get to more of it as the interview goes on. Um, But first off, I'd love for you to uh, sort of bring us to the beginning of the book. The book starts with the Thirty Years' War. Why did you choose that as your starting point? Well, the Thirty Years' War is many things, and we don't always understand all the things it was. Clearly, it's a war of it's a post-Reformation war of religion in Europe, and an extremely destructive one. At that, it's about two versions of what Europe is, 
uh, on one level, but on another level, it's actually about sovereignty. And the Treaty of Westphalia, Peace of Westphalia, and the two uh, uh, combined negotiations that fed into that in 1648 are often taken in modern Anglo-American thought to be the beginning of the modern state. And what I what I seek to point out in the book is they aren't really about uh, the modern idea of sovereignty at all, which is a large nation idea of sovereignty. They are actually about the uh, the balance of rights and duties within a composite monarchy, a multi-kingdom monarchy, in this case, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, but of course, multi-kingdom monarchies such as England and Scotland, uh, Denmark and Norway, or indeed the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania, were very common in the early modern period, and are much less common, and are much less common now. So in some ways, we get it is a war about sovereignty, but we get the nature of the sovereignty it's about wrong. It's also a war which uh, the British Isles participated in. Uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland all participated in the Thirty Years' War. Scotland, in particular, sent huge numbers of troops into the into the, the major theatres in the Thirty Years' War, and England sent quite a number as well. And then, if we take our eyes away from the insular and self-regarding terminology of the English Civil War, or even the War in the Three Kingdoms. You can actually see, and contemporaries made this analogy too, the link between the Thirty Years' War and the wars in England, Scotland, and Ireland between 1638 and and 1651. That those wars are actually not just about the Crown and Parliament, they are an extension of of the conflict of the Thirty Years' War, where constitutional and religious issues uh, are both in focus, uh, but in and interpreted in different ways by the different by the different sides. So the Thirty Years' War is a gigantic and unpleasant war about religion and sovereignty, and these islands are right in the middle of it. And Scotland's role in a composite monarchy, which had begun with the accession of James VI to the English throne in 1603, and to some extent persists to the present day, because the features of a composite monarchy, which is made up of different kingdoms, were eroded by the 1707 Union, but they weren't abolished by it. Scotland's experience as a participant in a composite monarchy, looking at uh, compromises in its uh, own sovereignty in order to take part in a wider set of uh, sovereign questions and challenges. These are all very topical within the the broader European context of the Thirty Years' War and also the argument we need to understand conflict in uh, the British Isles, uh, as we used to call it, as part of that Thirty Years' War and not something standing apart and separate from it, some kind of uh, hermetically sealed conflict between king and parliament. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that, again, the idea of these links and interconnectedness, and as you just said, right, there's no artificial separation um, the way that maybe textbooks sometimes imply. So it's a really fascinating way to kind of get us right into the action and right into some of the key arguments you make. And I'd love to kind of go on to one that we've both already mentioned, the idea of these links and networks being such a key part um, of Scotland's involvement in Europe and influence in both directions. So I was wondering if you could maybe explain to us a little bit, um, why did Scots have such strong links and networks in continental Europe in the 1500s, in the 1600s, and even after the Acts of Union? 
So there, there is really a very widespread set of reasons uh, why Scots were, were so influential and so engaged in continental Europe in the Middle Ages and early modern period. And uh, I'll pick out uh, the main ones, I think. The first is to do with trade. Uh, Scots merchants were very conscious that they, uh, the demand for a range of goods in, in Scotland, uh, including a complex and advanced technology, such as uh, clocks, which first appeared in Scotland in the 14th century, uh, was something that couldn't be needed to be supplied from um, from abroad, be imported. And Scotland itself had, throughout most of this period, particularly later in the Middle Ages, when uh, climate impacts affected the Scottish, the Scottish economy, had less of its own to export. And one of the key things that occurred was that Scots sought to control the export of the countries that we're exporting to Scotland by setting up uh, sometimes it, the the staple staple ports like those in Camp Vere in the Netherlands, sometimes by simply taking over mercantile supply uh, chains and businesses, as happened when Scots started to dominate the Bergen timber trade, but actually to control their own imports through controlling the exports to Scotland and other places. Of uh, the of those imports from their place of origin, so Scots merchants appear all over the place, from Poland to Rotterdam, uh, and are significantly engaged in the Northern European export trade. That's one thing. Another is that Scotland had, uh, I think, we've identified something more than a thousand pre-Reformation schoolmasters in Scotland. And uh, of course, Scotland had five universities by 1583, uh, had an overproduction of highly educated men at this stage, uh, uh, and compared to other European countries. And as a cons- uh, uh, and it frequently couldn't find sufficient employment for all of them. And frequently they found that employment abroad. Also, third, the third thing I pick out was that after the Reformation, Scotland didn't uh, habitually align directly with English thinking about the Reformation, certainly not with the Church of England. And although you might argue that the Kirk in Scotland largely had more uh, interested engagement with the nonconformist and more in common with the nonconformist in England, the Church of England. Actually, a lot of the relationships tended to be with the Huguenots uh, in France, where uh, Scots, who'd of course had a long history in Catholic France before the Huguenots arrived on the scene, uh, Huguenots arrived on the scene, were very influential in the Huguenot academies, and also in the Netherlands. In fact, one of the problems that Scotland had trading in the 17th century was the frequent identification of Scottish ships as effectively Dutch allies sailing under a false flag. So little difference was seen between the Netherlands and Scotland uh, in some circumstances, especially when a large number of uh, Scottish sailors sailed with the Dutch forces in the three uh, Anglo-Dutch wars in the 1660s and and 70s, and also when uh, Scots played such a significant part in the Dutch export trade, not only from the staple port of Veer, but also from some of the other major centres like Rotterdam, 
that uh, Scots were often identified uh, by uh, by um, hostile navies as effectively the Dutch in another guise. And indeed, uh, proposals were intermittently put forward to unite, to make Scotland one of the United Provinces, which would have led to a very different political outcome than the one we see today. Mm, that would have been quite different. Um, as you said, there's a lot of detail that unfortunately we don't go into um, in this interview, but I think those are the, the really, I'm glad you've picked out the main three um, aspects that create these links um, between all sorts of different communities and particularly the sort of education aspect because um, you also talk about in the book how people from, for example, the Netherlands go to Scotland to these universities and there's all sorts of connections um, around merchants as well. But there's also the military aspect that particularly comes up sort of as we move further along chronologically. Um, and of course, we can't really avoid um, thinking about the impact of the British Empire on Scotland um, and how Scotland um, benefits from it and is impacted by the empire. And you argue quite persuasively in the book that the British Empire disproportionately, in fact, impacts and benefits Scotland. Um, could you tell us a bit about this? Uh, yes, and briefly, one of the, uh, the fourth thing I might have said about, about European links is the presence of Scot- Scottish armies and Scottish armed forces in Europe pretty consistently from uh, the 14th and 15th centuries onwards, and certainly in the Thirty Years' War. Uh, the Scottish, uh, Scottish military were a, uh, played a significant role in the British Empire. In fact, if you look at the distribution of uh, Scottish and Irish troops in m- many of the major campaign, imperial campaigns in the Seven Years' War in 1756-63, even more perhaps in the, in the Napoleonic Wars, where one of the paradoxes of Waterloo is that um, only 28% of Wellington's army were even British in 1815, and that included uh, the Irish regiments, um, that, that actually it has, a, it has a disproportionate effect, which is largely lost to our understanding now, that if you look at uh, films from the 1960s or 70s, like uh, Zulu Dawn or the Charge of the Light Brigade, you'll see the multinational nature of the Imperial British Army uh, is present. But if you look at later adaptations um, of uh, war in the Napoleonic era, 18th century, it appears that almost every single soldier who ever fought under the imperial flag was English. That's been quite a sea change. And it's been a cha- uh, uh, I mention it because we, we now no longer recognize, as, our, 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 as predecessors did throughout the British Empire, the huge role that the Scottish soldier played in that empire. And Scotland's uh, Scotland's extraordinarily strong networks also played a major role. So educational networks played a major role. The threefold standard Scottish network is educational, uh, kin-based, and regional. And often all those three things went together. You were related to people who went to the same school or sometimes the same university and came from the same area. Remembering, of course, that the four largest Scottish cities today are the four largest Scottish cities in 1500. Although you get a big industrial revolution, you don't get the extraordinary impact of places like Manchester or Birmingham growing from being relatively secondary or tertiary cities to being huge. You, or, or the cities do get bigger, Glasgow gets bigger than Edinburgh, but, the st- but there's a consistency in borough life and a, in the size of the cities. Well, what that means is that when Scots get involved and they get bought off, from, for example, uh, from Jacobitism, uh, which we'll come to in a moment, 
by Walpole's administration by giving them disproportionate access to uh, East India Company in India. And they also uh, uh, they also make significant amounts of money in the uh, uh, using even less reputable means of doing so in the Caribbean and later on in East in later on in East Asia. But they often they often repatriate that money not to um, uh, Market Drayton but to Scotland. They they repatriate it nationally and locally to their own networks. To invest in their own, to invest in their own businesses or their families' businesses or their friends' businesses or their schoolfellows' businesses, and this repatriation of capital, disproportionately earned by Scots abroad, helps to uh, to change the economic status of Scotland very markedly between the late eighteenth and the early mid nineteenth century to a state where it is much wealthier. Uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the United Kingdom than it was in 1707. Mm. That's a really interesting um, combination of things that, as you said, given how money was then sent back, creates a very different context. Um, And I do now want to turn to sort of what you just mentioned of the Jacobite cause. How can we understand the 45 Rising, which obviously has a massive amount written about it in um, literature, how can we understand it in the context of this British imperialism? Well, the 45 was largely fought by uh, men for a different, uh, and indeed women, for a different kind of Scotland uh, and a different kind of Ireland. Uh, not so much a different kind of England, but then not a great many uh, people of English origin fought in it. So the Scottish and Irish Jacobites were uh, in favour of uh, a multi-kingdom monarchy such as a, of a more clear-cut kind, that is not one which is, which was so heavily centralised in London, but with one with three capitals, three courts, three administrations. Of course, there was a separate parliament administration at this time in Ireland, but not one uh, that gave any uh, rights to Catholics such as been, had been passed in James Seventh and Second's last Irish parliament in 1689 in 1689-90 so they've got a different view of what the state should be and it's fundamentally it's fundamentally a european perspective it is to some extent an imperial perspective the jacobites are not completely uninterested in empire they're interested in uh, the caribbean for example uh, they're interested to an extent in north america and in india but they're much less geared towards the idea of playing a zero-sum game with France to be top net, to be top dog. So they're looking at a more uh, uh, they're looking at a more um, semi-detached model of the British polity, and they're looking at one which is more prepared, as indeed Charles II's and James's governments had, to reach an accommodation with France as uh, a, a not necessarily unfriendly, but uh, related major power. So they were not so, their, their vision was a constitutional vision, but it wasn't really about the divine right of kings. It was about the restoration of a different kind of British polity, a strong connectivity of that polity with European destinies and European priorities, and a, an attitude towards France which was more ameliorative, more engaged uh, than that perhaps, uh, well, certainly practiced by their uh, Hanoverian opponents. Uh, 
Because one of the things we really, really, really forget in British history, it's a huge hole, is that this small central German electorate, Hanover, was part of the British Empire and part of the kingdom, the the core kingdom of uh, Great Britain, from uh, effectively from seventeen from seventeen fourteen to eighteen thirty seven, and that it was extremely vulnerable, and that quite often troops had to be uh, sent to defend it, as for example happened in the seventeen forties in the War of the Austrian Succession. So. Um, Hanover is very uh, is it, it, it paradoxically is embedded in Europe, but is involved in the struggle to be top nation against France. The Jacobites are embedded in Europe in a very different way. They don't have a strategic uh, a strategic interest in maintaining a small German kingdom in the heart of it. What they what they have instead is a history of much closer relations with uh, with France with Spain. Uh, and to an extent, although slightly different ones, with Russia and Sweden. So this is obviously extending from the answer you've just explained, but why do you consider then the defeat of the Jacobite cause, um, right, what happened at Culloden, as a world historical moment? I don't think we're always very good at recognising world historical moments, but um, and, I, I, and I don't think actually that the victory at Culloden would have changed much, but victory of the Jacobites might. And uh, and there's a maximalist case for this, and it's a little bit of an exercise in, in what if I'm not suggesting all these things would necessarily have happened at all. But it's quite easy to see that in the case of a Jacobite restoration, there would have been, as I've suggested, a rapprochement with France. If there was a rapprochement with France, the war of 1756 to 63 would not have been fought uh, certainly in the way it was fought, and certainly not with uh, the zero-sum game tactics pursued in Canada and India and elsewhere. So it's very unlikely that the, that the French would have been both defeated and also impoverished by fighting a seven-year global war, the first global war. That The British success in that war removed the French threat from the north of the American colonies, and therefore, as was, it's uh, as has been said by many other historians, the uh, a rebellion of 1776, which turned into the United States of America, would not have occurred with a major French presence north of the uh, north of the thirteen colonies, because it was simply too risky. The continental United States, uh, in fact, of course, de- depended on French help. Uh, in paradoxically, in the end. Uh, to secure Cornwallis's defeat at Yorktown. But had France been unchallenged in North America, uh, that would have been a very different story. France would have been much more able to deal with its economic downturn in the 1780s because it wouldn't have been exhausted by military expenditure, and therefore it's quite likely the French Revolution would not have occurred. If the French Revolution doesn't occur, then Napoleon Bonaparte doesn't exist or doesn't, uh, uh, in the sense of being a world historical actor, though he may very well exist as a French officer. So we have a situation where, at its most extreme interpretation, um, the whole shape of the conflicts that underpin the development of modern Europe and the modern world in 1756 and 1815 simply don't happen, or simply don't happen in the way that that we, we know that they did happen. The Jacobites and the Stuarts are very much 
a European dynasty. And their engagement with their fellow European dynasts is one which both cuts across uh, high levels of global competitiveness and also leads to a greater degree of engagement with other countries than was being practiced by a self increasingly self-consciously Protestant England towards the end of the 18th century. Mm, very interesting um, hypothetical and sort of thought exercise that I think um, does sort of call into question things going, mm, well, what could have happened there and thinking that through. So thank you for sort of taking us through um, that train of thought, really. I'd like to come back now to um, something you mentioned briefly about um, sort of perception and memory and things like that. And particularly this idea of visibly Scottish military regiments and soldiers. Um, and you mentioned that um, relatively recently, there that was a memory that was sort of preserved and yet is now one that's quite forgotten. And yet you show in the book that from the pretty immediate time period after Culloden, well through British everything until even the end of World War II, Scottish military regiments and soldiers were visibly present on battlefields and really were essentially everywhere that the British were and quite often in large numbers at the front. Um, What can we understand about Scotland's self-perception, its perception within the Union, the British Isles, as as you said, they used to be known, um, and within the British Empire by understanding this bit of history that maybe we've forgotten more recently? Well, the Scottish military experience was central in the British Empire. Uh, One has to accept that there's a degree of mythologization in that experience itself, so that the the modern Scottish military experience in the empire occurs largely because 10 years after the Battle of Culloden, Uh, the general officers commanding the British army in Scotland are still not absolutely convinced that they've they've laid the ghost of Jacobitism. And so there's a counter-argument or argument that starts in the early 1750s and goes through to the mid-1750s and is uh, catalyzed by the conflict initially in Canada that actually the only way of sorting this out is to send these, is to incorporate these troops in the British army uh, and the wearing tartan and to send them abroad. It's not the first time this has been thought of, but it's the time when it's crystallized to a great extent. And so by uh, the late 18th century, more than a quarter of Highland landowners are actually the, the holders of officer rank in the British Army. And they've raised very large numbers of men. It's, it's, it's huge figures by the time the Napoleonic Wars comes around. And one of the ways, and these men often suffer as they did in in uh, Ticonderoga and uh, on the plains of Abraham in the Seven Years' War, they they often suffer horrendous casualties. And the story that uh, uh, that uh, is used to engage Scotland's belief in its own uh, martial role in the British Empire is a story about the martial excellence of the Scottish soldier, their unique excellence. And this story, uh, although you often you find, for example, British officers saying, well, the Black Watch aren't that great um, in the 1750s, early 1760s, uh, the Black Watch, particularly after their former officer, Stuart of Garth, gives them a boost in the Highlanders of Scotland in the early 19th century. 
are um, the Fighting Forty Second. They have become uh, uh, they have become a symbol of Scottish martial prowess, and this extends right across other Scottish uh, uh, Scottish units as well. The Scots are always are seen as the leading edge soldiers of the British Empire in many respects. In many respects, indeed, the the um, uh, chief of staff, as I think he then is, Garnet Woolsey, after the Battle of Ten El Kabir, tries to get the role because he's he's an Irish ascendancy man himself and he's worried about Irish Home Rule. Tries to get the role of the Irish soldiers in the battle talked up, and the Liverpool Echo runs an editorial about how this is a disgraceful insult to Scottish national pride and everyone knows the Scots were once again um, uh, 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 first into the enemy trenches at Tel El-Kabir and all the rest of it. This is very standard stuff for the period. Uh, it's not always 100% true. I'm not being a chauvinist and bigging up the Scottish soldier. Uh, Scottish soldiers did sometimes outperform because they felt a greater pre- pressure to conform. That's a, that's a, a, a recognised pattern of behaviour. But also, uh, to some extent, the uh, the valour of the Scottish soldier was itself a construct used to justify the very large scale um, participation of Scotland in British imperial conflicts in the 18th and 19th centuries. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's quite often difficult to sort of untangle myth from reality. Um, and of course, knowing that there's elements of both. So thank you for sort of demystifying it um, in this case. We've obviously been moving chronologically um, forward more towards the present from the Thirty Years' War, um, the Acts of Union, Culloden, British imperialism, etc. And I would like to make sure that um, we talk about the really quite modern um, and very current um, aspects of Scotland that you address in the book. Um, And so Scottish nationalism obviously becomes particularly important the more recent we get. And I was fascinated to read in the book that you argue, quote, Scottish nationalism is a much more unusual creature than conventional historians of nationalism might suppose. Can you tell us about why you think that? Well, I think the, the, the fundamental reason for saying that is that a lot of uh, um, theorists or historians of nationalism or those who want to understand nationalism seek to understand Scottish nationalism in a European context. They seek to understand it as a nationalism like uh, Catalan nationalism or uh, like in past a uh, past era Croatian nationalism. But actually, it's very much more like uh, in its structure, the nationalism of New Zealand or Australia or Canada. It's, it's, it is ultimately a British imperial nationalism rather than a European one. And and why do I say that? Well, one of the key things about the British Empire, another thing we've largely forgotten, is that uh, Scotland was uh, uh, was largely left alone in terms of its domestic policy. There wasn't a democratic process for that, but administratively it was left there in terms of its domestic policy. And it projected itself abroad. The world was full of Scottish associations, uh, St Andrew's societies, Caledonian clubs, Barnes clubs, and so forth, which existed to integrate Scots abroad, to network Scots abroad, and really importantly, to ensure that they got jobs and good jobs in preference to other citizens of uh, the United Kingdom. And this was perfectly normal and and, uh, and tolerated. And the nature of Scottish nationality in the imperial era 
was very much Scottish and British. But it was Scottish and British, not as we sometimes you would use the term now, um, meaning we're all, you know, we're all British, but there's this Scottish bit. But Scottish and British in the same way as people would say Canadian and British or Australian and British. Of course, there are still people in Canada who identify with, uh, who would describe themselves as Canadian and British. It's not a large number now, but they still, they, they certainly are still there. Uh, so this, cha- this changed very markedly between, in a very short period of time, between the 1938 Empire Exhibition, the last big Empire Exhibition, which is a Scottish National Pavilion and a, a street of Scotland, and presented Scotland as a national entity within the British Empire, and the 1951 Festival of Britain, which started to present Britain as a a unitary state without any kind of um, different nationalities in it, and for the first time in the wake of the Empire Windrush, presented actually uh, the Empire as something which had come home so that Britain was, we understood as a monot- as, as a diverse society in terms of ethnic background. This was a little bit pushy in 1951, but it was certainly in the festival. Uh, and was at the same time one which was fundamentally a, a society which was similar, entirely similar. It was, it was the phrase postcode lottery, of course, comes from the 1945-51 Labour government. Uh, there was one, one state. And there's a double problem with this. The problem was that Scotland had seen itself as uh, as both a nation and part of a wider international British polity. British Britishness was seen as an international identity, not a national one. Converting it from international to a national identity excluded Scotland. Of course, some of the other countries which had once used that identity comfortably, like New Zealand and Australia, became increasingly uh, and of course, we're already in moving in the direction of independence much earlier than this, but increasingly independent. Um, uh, Australia, for example, introducing the Australian dollar in 1966 in succession to Sterling in this period. Following on that, decolonization in, uh, in the 1960s made a huge difference to Scotland, a larger difference proportionate than England, because in the Scottish uh, grammar schools, up to 30 to 40% of people would expect to have at least a partially imperial career. That was a really, really chunky, that was a really chunky number. And uh, this was suddenly, this suddenly disappeared overnight. So the sense was that you, that, that Scot, Scotland was being pushed into uh, a, a place where it had got to be, where, where it was, uh, its Britishness had got to be redefined in this new Rather, a uh, 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 rather monotechnical way, as uh, fundamentally not diverse uh, uh, from in any kind of political sense, and uh, and also all the instrumental opportunities that had once come from Scottish Britishness, there's the British Empire, uh, were disappearing at roughly the same time, and this is a process that goes on over a twenty to thirty year period. It's not a light switch. But gradually, this feeds the growth of modern Scottish nationalism. When Winnie Ewing wins the historic um, Hamilton by-election in 1967, she, her, her poster has a picture of her sitting on a globe uh, with the slogan, Stop the World, Scotland Wants to Get On, which is what she actually used in her victory speech. That sense in 1967 clearly reflected the marginalisation of Scotland in global terms, which was identified by those who supported a stronger national articulation in the 1960s.
Mm. You you then in the book bring this um, together and in a lot of ways sort of in full circle to help us understand um, a lot of these competing threads the way you've just done to understand today's what you call constitutional instability in Scotland um, and how this is part of the nationalistic nationalism debates you've just described um but also kind of in some ways goes all the way back to what you're saying at the beginning about sovereignty um, and understandings of that so can you kind of take us through and demystify for us um this constitutional instability in scotland today well i think it's it's i mean first of all i don't think it's it's a controversial term to use it's fairly clear that um when uh uk politicians think of scotland they tend to think of it as causing a constitutional problem rather than any other uh, uh light but if you're just to take a few examples over the uh, the the past few years and uh, and they reflect think the way in which as I've already suggested with the redefinition of Britain to being uh, to being uh, ourselves alone and for anyone who doubts the uh, anyone who doubts the redefinition I'll put a non-Scottish context on it and ask them to look at how many programs are either act, are either on television on Freeview are either about World War Two or a set in World War Two or the adjacent era. That's a huge, there's a huge redefinition of national identity as bound up with the singular Britain emerging, standing alone, emerging from World War II. And you can see it to this day in the way in which British popular culture represents itself. Represents itself. So the, within that, there, there is a fundamental uh, lack of understanding, uh, not for the first time. You can say the same thing about Ireland in the late 19th century, but of the situation in Scotland as it's emerging and why it's emerging. I think people don't just don't seem to understand that it emerges because actually Britain has changed. The concept of Britain has changed. And so if we talk about uh, instability, we have the pressure, uh, the, uh, the pressure for uh, a Scottish devolution referendum, which on the, uh, on the revised terms granted narrowly, uh, narrowly fails in 1979. We then have further agitation for a Scottish uh, devolution referendum, and which goes on throughout the later 1980s and into the 1990s. It's the single issue the Labour Party f- fights the 1992 general election along. The slogan is a Scottish Parliament will be along, vote Labour, Scottish Parliament will be along in a tick. Uh, um, though, in fact, of course, we put a cross on the box. Um, then there's the 1997 devolution, refer- devolution referendum, the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, the disappointment of the Scottish Parliament, because um, it, when it does things, uh, it annoys the UK, it annoys the UK, the UK Parliament and, its, and the newspapers and so forth. When it doesn't do things, it annoys the Scottish public. Uh, then you uh, uh, then you have the pressure for increasing powers in the Scottish Parliament, the election of the Scottish National Party as the government for the first time in 2007. It's getting a majority, which the electoral system is designed for it not to have in 2011. The independence referendum in 2014, the spectacle of the Brexit referendum in 2016, when when every single local authority in Scotland votes to remain in the EU. And um, of course, Scotland has to, to leave the EU because it's a UK-wide vote. And now um, the pressure in the face once again of a nationalist SNP and Green majority in Hurud for, for another independence referendum, uh, which 
has, and I just give a sample of UK government or ministerial response to date, um, now is not the time, no, not at any time, uh, and the recent suggestions that the actual process will be changed, so a simple majority would not be enough in such a referendum, and indeed it would be a majority, uh, the suggestion is it would not just be a majority of those who vote, an enhanced majority of those who vote, but a majority of the electorate. You can see that this is uh, uh, this has gone through a huge range of um, very uh, marked argument, disagreement, and tension. So that now things are really polarized. But at no point has anyone done really what um, Gladstone did in um, his secret memorandum number three in looking at the Irish question, eighteen eighty five work out why it's come about and suggest ways of solving it. And so it becomes more and more difficult to solve without naked aggression. And we're getting closer to to a very aggressive kind of politics around it. So it is constitutionally unstable. And it's very evident, it seems to me, that UK politicians don't actually necessarily understand their, uh, the, the constitutional situation that's been brought about, let alone seek to diffuse it. And to make it even more complicated, um, you talk about Brexit adding additional complexity to the idea of independence for Scotland, to campaigns for independence. Um, So can we add Brexit into this confusion and lack of stability? We certainly can. I mean, it's created a lack of stability because the two most detachable parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland and Northern Ireland, both voted in favour of remaining in the EU. Uh, currently, of course, Northern Ireland effectively is in the EU single market and the UK government is determined to pull it out of it uh, or at least to challenge the EU, uh, challenge the EU on the issue by um, uh, breaking the current protocol agreement. Uh, and uh, in Scotland is, of course, excluded from that market. So in both cases, both in, in Northern Ireland and in Scotland, it's led to a further hardening of nationalist positions and a rise in nationalism. Uh, Because there are some, the position is slightly more complicated in Scotland, and I I don't want to skate over it, but I don't want to dwell on it too much either, because there is a proportion of the nationalist support in Scotland which has always favoured some kind of lighter European economic area, EFTA kind of deal rather than membership of the EU. That group certainly exists, what you don't get, uh, and what's almost invisible in Scotland, although there probably are a few around uh, uh, people with this sort of view, is the kind of extreme uh, Brexiteer, distrustful of foreigners, obsessed with sovereignty, um, which is familiar elsewhere. So if your situation where the two parts of the United Kingdom who are most semi-detached vote the opposite way to the United Kingdom as a whole on a critical constitutional issue, which uh, uh, this Brexit, which has got uh, a, a situation where a relatively narrow majority is interpreted in the in the maximalist way uh, by uh, the hardest possible exit, then you are going to have constitutional instability. That's a very clear um, answer and quite impressive, really, for weaving all the different things together um, and making them make more sense. When, as you said, so many politicians um, clearly haven't thought it through necessarily. Um, And I do want to direct listeners to 
um, the book for a lot more details about Scottish nationalism, current Scottish nationalism, to um, understanding what Brexit is doing within these politics, um, understanding what Scottish independence could look like, what some of the challenges would be. So all of those details um, are very much in the book for listeners who want to learn more about that. Um, But I do have one last question for you uh, before I let you go. And we've now kind of obviously moved up to very much the present, um, which is where the book obviously ends. Um, Though, as I said, you do have some predictions of kind of what could happen in future and what that might look like. Um, But I suppose moving away a little bit from the book and thinking about um, yourself and your work, is there any project that you're working on next or currently or any sort of thing you'd like to share with the audience of what you're doing um, now that the book has been released and is available for people to read? Yes, yeah, so uh, um, I'm working on, um, the big project is that I'm working on a study of um, the post of the British Army in Scotland in the 20 years after Culloden, about which there is currently no book and no full-scale article, though there is uh, a great deal, an enormous amount, in fact, of primary evidence and it's a very interesting story. It's not a story about, you know, about uh, uh, atrocity and negativity. These things happen. I think, actually, you can, uh, 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 once you move away from the immediate aftermath of Culloden, there's a relative degree of um, uh, forbearance by comparison, say, to the uh, uh, reaction of British forces after the Indian, uh, after the Indian Mutiny or First War of Independence, Indian Rising of 1857, and uh, after in Ireland in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, but it, it's but you but the extent to which the troops are present, their rotation, their lives, their impact on the boroughs, the introduction of cricket, all these things are there, and it is simply a completely untold story about um, managing uh, political opposition. Uh, and managing it largely through military means, but actually developing what becomes, in general, quite a light-touch strategy for doing so. It's a fascinating tale. And I think some of the, one of the interesting things has been for me is that, that some of the people who have been most interested in it are, um, uh, for example, the National Army Museum, uh, regiment, uh, regimental uh, historians and, uh, some, and regimental organizations, because quite often this part of the story isn't always very prominent in regimental histories uh, for those uh, British regiments or their or their amalgamated descendants who were stationed in Scotland in the years after 1746. Well, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating project. Um, I hope that does become a book and we can have you back to learn more about it at that point because um, that sounds very interesting and I think, yeah, not something that we necessarily, maybe we think we know more than we probably actually do. So... Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And while you are off exploring um, the massive amount of primary sources that I'm sure there are, um, listeners can read the book we've been primarily discussing on this episode, which again is titled Scotland, A Global History, just out in 2022 from Yale University Press. Dr. Murray Pittock, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda. It's a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon.